As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Just the way she carried herself, it was just, you know, she lit up the room and that's, you know, even the first time we ever met. She just had this presence about her that people wanted to be around. And I can see why, you know, some of the richest guys around Sydney would want to be with her because, you know, she was stunning and she could hold a conversation. That's Clinton Barter who met a beautiful girl called Ravel in a Sydney nightclub in early 1994. 
They dated for a few months, but it petered out naturally as these things do, and they both moved on to new relationships with no hard feelings. In November of that same year, Ravel disappeared in sensational circumstances. When she failed to meet her mother Jan for Sunday lunch, alarm bells rang immediately. The two were very close, and standing her mum up was something Ravel simply wouldn't do. Jan went home and contacted Ravel's flatmate and then her other friends and discovered that not only did none of them know where her daughter was, but she'd also missed a planned meeting with a girlfriend the previous night. Jan started calling hospitals. The next day, Monday, some of Ravel's things were found scattered in the street. It was then that the police came. They knew something about Ravel's life that the people who loved her most didn't know. Not her parents, not her friends or her boyfriends. The police knew that Ravel had been last seen by a client because she was a sex worker. Police realised upon meeting Ravel's parents that the news was going to be shocking to them. So they didn't actually tell them both. They took her father, Ivor, aside and broke the news to him, suggesting he try to find the right time to break it to Jan. It took him several days to find the moment, but eventually Ivor did tell Jan. And some years later, she reflected that Ravel had lost her way for a little while. A lot of young people do, she said. Most of them escape, but Ravel was unlucky. She didn't escape it. She paid the highest possible price for the choices she made. But we don't believe she doesn't deserve justice. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Author John Dale is an established true crime writer, but he decided to try his hand at fiction. He didn't stray too far from the path, though. His debut novel is a crime fiction novel called Detective Work, and it's based on the still unsolved disappearance of Sydney model, dancer and, yes, part-time escort, Ravel Balmain. John joined Emily to tell us all about this frustrating cold case. The detail that got me most interested was when they found her shoes, her keys to her unit, her diary, scattered in these two streets in Kingsford. And I thought, who would take a girl and then throw her clothes out into the street? And a car was seen in Kingsford stopping by some neighbours near where the clothes were found two days later. So that was the detail that started me. And I thought, I'd really like to know what happened. And of course, I followed the coronial inquest, which was a few years later. And it's a mystery because it's still never been solved, this case. And yet, the more you read about it, the more you know, you start to think someone did it, that we, the main suspect did it. And then another, there'd be other details and you think, why did he do it? I can't think of anything that's more mysterious in a way of what happened to her on this last day. It was the last day she was going to work in the escort industry. She was really happy waiting to go overseas for a dance contract. She had a new boyfriend. Everything was set and yet it was the last day of her life. You spoke about the scattered items of her possessions and I really remember the shoe. 
the shoe was so vivid. It's a, like a cork wedge platform shoe with shells. Yes, and it's the platform shoe. Yeah. yeah. She was 22 and, as you said, she was about to embark on a new adventure. Well, she was a professional dancer, jazz, classic in uh, ballet. She had a dance contract in Japan that was coming up in two weeks after this murder date or disappearance date because her body's never been found, but she's presumed to be murdered. She was also a fashion model and she was on a couple of magazines of the period, one called Oyster. She's on the front cover of that. She's very attractive. She was blonde, 55 kilos she weighed, which comes into it later on because it raises questions later on what happened to her. She's quite slight. She was very happy. She had a mother and a stepfather in Newcastle. So she's living in Sydney. She's living in Bellevue Hill in a unit there sharing with a friend. And she had a very close friend called Kate Brentnell who's the last person to actually hear from her on the night of Saturday, 5th of November, 1994. You mentioned the cover of Oyster magazine because that image became the image of Ravel and it was, a, yeah. I guess, a pretty high fashion mag back in the day and it's quite a cool cover. Spiky hair. Yeah, it was all crimped yeah. and she's just gorgeous actually. I mean, she's stunning. It is a fact that young, attractive women do get a lot of attention in the media if they become victims of crime and we've spoken about that before on this podcast. So in terms of the investigation, how did that play out in those early days and months after she disappeared? Well, I think this is the key issue. Some would say that the investigation didn't go very well and often this is the case when someone does disappear, it's those first few days that are crucial. With Ravel, it was the Saturday night, the last anyone heard of her. Saturday night around 7.30 was the last time she heard from her friend and the last time her client said he saw her. But no one was interviewed until the Monday and then the, the main client was interviewed on the Monday. But she was at first thought to be just missing. And so there was nothing seriously done for a week or so and there was no physical evidence unit brought in early. And so even the main suspect's car, and I'll I'll talk to you about him because that's the fascination of this case. Even his car wasn't searched for another 10 days after she initially went missing. So that was the problem is that they didn't think she was murdered to start with. They thought she was just missing. Maybe she'd gone off somewhere. But her parents were insistent that she had this date to go to Japan. Her boyfriend was the one who actually... You have to give him credit. He was the one that really pushed for the police and said, no, she wouldn't just go off like this and not tell anyone, you know, we're in love. And he pushed the police to keep investigating. I think they dismissed it early, the qualms of the parent and the boyfriend. And Ravel was actually meant to meet her mum, wasn't she? The next day she was about to meet her mother, but she was about to meet her best friend, Kate Brentnell, that same evening for a drink. And then she was going to meet up with her boyfriend around 10 o'clock in the Pennington Hotel. She felt at the time and told her friend that it was a very serious relationship and that she was in love. So she was supposed to meet him that night and meet her best friend for a drink prior to that. But of course, she didn't turn up. So everything is pointing to her having a lot of great things happening in her life. What was the nature of the kind of work she did in terms of being an escort? She was a sort of casual escort just to make additional money and then she was saving up for that trip to Japan. And that night that she disappeared was supposed to be the last night she told her friend she wanted to get out of the industry. She thought her modelling and dance career was now on the up and she didn't need to do this to pay her rent. 
She worked for two agencies. So she worked for VIP agency and then left them and worked for companion escort agency. And that's who she was working for on the last night. Were those agencies helpful to the police when they were investigating? Ah, well, that's interesting because, I mean, the, she, there are certain arrangements she, she had with the agency that she, whenever she went to a client's house, she had to ring in to say, I'm here with a client. And when she left the client's house, she'd have to ring back and say, I'm now leaving the client. That was the only security they had. She had nothing to do with the owners on that night, but there was like a receptionist she dealt with. So when she got to the client's house, she rang, which was about five minutes to four. And when she left, she rang at six o'clock. But there are other things that come into this once we're talking about the main suspect. And the main suspect, person of interest to the police, who was that person? It's a man called Gavin Samir, S-A-M-E-R. His story is very interesting because... On the day of her disappearance, he went for a surf in the morning. He lived in Kingsford, this house that she was last seen at. He went for a surf in Palm Beach uh, at 4.30 a.m. in the morning. Then he came home. He lived with his girlfriend, but his girlfriend was visiting family in Brisbane. And while his girlfriend was away, he went and hocked her clarinet for $250 in Bondi Junction went down to the local hotel, which is, again, significant. It's called Red Tomato Inn in Kingsford in Sydney. And he went there and played the card machines. And according to his statement, he won $150 on the card machines, if you can believe that. And then he went home to his house and decided to ring up an escort agency to have someone come over. He claimed he'd never rang an escort agency before. But when he first rang them, he gave a false name and they rang him back and said, this, that phone's not registered to this name. And then he gave his real name. The timeline's really, I think, the key issue to the story to some degree. There are a lot of things that he's lied about or, or not true, but like winning the 150 on the card machines, that's possible. But when she arrived at 10 to 4 on that afternoon and um, she brought a bottle of champagne, which he'd asked her to, to bring, and then they had sex and she had a shower and he'd paid for two hours. And then at six o'clock, he said to her, how about I pay you an extra hour and you don't have to tell the agency. So this is what he claims he did. And she rang at six o'clock and told the agency she'd finished. But really, she stayed on for another hour with him because she said she needed the money. That's what he, this is all through his statement, his police statement. And then he claims that he was feeling hungry, so he drove her down to the same hotel he'd been gambling on earlier that day, and he let her out, and he said that she, he saw her walk into the hotel. He went to the bottle shop and bought some cider and cigarettes. This is at 7 o'clock. There's no record of the, of the hotel selling this particular purchase of cider and cigarettes at that time. No one saw her enter the hotel. And as the public had said, we would have noticed that she was, you know, very noticeable. And it was a rundown hotel, doesn't exist anymore. And then he said he drove home and had a few more drinks and fell asleep. That's his story. The last person that, other than Gavin Samir, that spoke to her was her friend. And she rang about seven o'clock and said, I'm with a client. I'm leaving soon. I'll meet you at the hotel. And Kay said, can't you talk? And she said, I can't talk right now. So that's the end of that. 
that's the last we, we heard or knew about her until in the nearby street about 11 o'clock at night. Neighbours heard a car pull up shouting and these items were found in the street next day, her, her purse, her, her diary, her shoes. And they're actually found in two different streets around where Gavin Samir lived and around where she'd last been. The last day that Ravel is seen or spoken to is the 5th of November, 1994. Yeah. Gavin Samir is spoken to how many times by police? He wasn't interviewed until the Monday, which was the 7th of November, the Monday after the Saturday. The Sunday, nothing happened. Though the agency rang him a couple of times because they hadn't heard from her and he said, oh, you know, he'd signed a check. He told them that he gave her $400 in cash and he, he said he also gave her a $100 check as a tip for herself. And this kind of, this is interesting later because he later, police said to him, well, where's your check sub book? You know, with all the subs that used to have in a checkbook and he couldn't find it. He said, oh, it's gone. It's disappeared. And also he'd, he'd claimed to have won 150, having 400, but it, then he's buying this alcohol and cigarettes. Where's he got the 400? The, the money part to me doesn't add up in his story, amongst other things. Now, the police came and interviewed him on, or they took him down to Maroubra Police Station on Monday at five o'clock, and they noticed several things about him. They noticed that he had scratches on his neck. He had scratches on his chest, which resembled fingernail scratches. And he had a very, in the middle finger of his left hand, at middle knuckle, he had what appeared to be a severe bite mark. And he claimed he got it from surfing. He didn't know how he got the scratches. But later, his lawyer suggested that he got them gardening. So they asked him all these questions. We know, did you see her? He said, no, she went to the hotel. He denied ever seeing again. And that was the first time he was interviewed. Police didn't check anything. They didn't check the car. They didn't ask to see clothes, which you mentioned police would do today. But again, we can't blame the police too much because it wasn't regarded as a murder investigation. It was regarded as a missing person. Why do you think they've regarded it as a missing person, but why weren't things maybe pointing to it being more sinister than that? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. I think that she was working in the escort industry. I don't think they would be highly regarded by police in those days, perhaps better today, as someone of high priority to investigate. Maybe that was a reason. We saw that with other women who've worked in the sex industry. So I'd say that could possibly it. The detective who was in charge had just started at the station that weekend, so he wasn't that experienced. And they thought maybe she'd gone off on a, you know, drugs or drink or something for a couple of days. I mean, someone goes, just doesn't come home one day. You don't worry about it that much. But um, by the Monday, when no one had heard from a friend, family, boyfriend, then they started to worry. So you mentioned there's been a coronal inquest yep. into Ravel's disappearance. They interviewed a lot of people. Gavin Samir was represented by a high-profile lawyer that apparently cost his parents about half a million dollars to pay for this leading Sydney QC at the time. The coroner found that the evidence pointed towards Gavin Samir, but there was no motive for him doing this. Why would he murder her? They investigated the agency, but the agency didn't know there was a husband and wife, the Stanjevics, 
but the husband and wife didn't know where she was on that particular evening because it was all done through the receptionist who did know. But don't forget, the receptionist had thought that she'd finished at six o'clock when in fact she didn't finish to seven. So they wouldn't have known where she was at seven o'clock either. So they dismissed them. Other people came forward from her past that they thought might have been involved and gave evidence, but there was no evidence to point to anyone else. That was the issue. I think there was even some um, guy who claimed that she was murdered because of drugs, but there was nothing ever pointed to any of that. If anything, she was a casual drug user. She wasn't an addict. She didn't buy drugs. So that wasn't an issue either. So the coroner, he did say that the police investigation could have been better. But again, he, he said the reason was because they thought she was just missing to start with. But they should have called in the physical evidence unit to look at his clothes, to look at his car, and also... The coroner found that the missing checkbook was worrying. Why, why, where did this checkbook with the sub go? Also, he lost, uh, there was a surf shirt in his house that went missing as well, which was also troubling to the, the coroner. Why is the surf shirt gone? There's a lot of things around Gavin Summy that are, that are disturbing these, these issues. But then again, what is the motive? Why would he, unless they had an argument, but the scratches, the, the bite, the checkbook, the, the surf shirt. Following this case, I, I couldn't make up my mind like the coroner who was responsible. All the evidence points towards Gavin Samir, but there's no body. There's no evidence of, of uh, you know, blood or clothing in the house. And why, if he did do it, why would he scatter her possessions around the street where he lives? That doesn't make sense. I mean, that's the strange bit. Why would you do that? If, you, if you'd just murdered her accidentally over money, because I don't think he had that money that he said he did. If he'd murdered her over money, they'd fought. He wouldn't throw all her, her shoes and a purse two streets away, even though a car resembling the car he had, which was his father's car, was seen in, in one of the adjoining streets. But then again, he was, he'd been drinking. Do you think there's any correlation with his heavy drinking and the lack of reasoning why he could have done it? It's possible. I mean, I've watched him in court. He's a big, tall, muscly guy. He's certainly strong. And I said she only weighed 55 kilos and was five foot eight. The police wanted to know where his surfboard cover was, uh, whether he could have lifted her in, into his car easily. He's strong enough. He did drink a lot. If they did have an argument over what did he do with it, he went surfing next morning at 5 a.m. again. So he lied to his girlfriend about what he'd been up to. The scratches, the the bite on his knuckle, these point towards some sort of argument to me, uh, and he has a violent temper. But what happened after this is a couple of incidents I wanted to tell you. Two years later, the same agency gets a phone call from someone at that same address wanting to have an escort come to the house. They notice it's the same address where Ravel Balmain disappeared so they ring the police and the police go out to the address and they find Gavin Sumair there sitting on a fence drunk with his top off and they question him and say, why did you, did you make this call? He admits he did. He admits he used a false name because of Ravel Balmain. I mean, that's not incriminating in itself, but it's, it's very weird behaviour. And then he leaves Sydney he goes to Tasmania and works in a pub in a town called Signet, 50 miles out of Hobart, and becomes a recluse. 
He lives there, has nothing to do with the people in the town. I interviewed the woman who ran the hotel who was his boss and said he was very strange, that he had a fascination with knives. He was a chef and he used to call, she said to me, he used to call his knife his stabber. The house that he rented used to have all these stab holes in it, according to her. Again, all these things point to his involvement, but they're not proof or evidence of his involvement. But they're just strange. They all add up. And then recently I thought, well, there's no way I wrote the book Detective Work, but I couldn't definitely say one way or the other what happened. But recently, in April of last year, Gavin Samir was charged with assaulting an elderly woman who he'd been residing with, and that matters before the courts at the moment. Have you had much contact with Ravel's family, John, in terms of when you were doing researching this case and writing your novel detective work? I've had a lot of, oh, not a lot, but I've had quite a considerable amount of emails with um, Sue Ellen. That's her stepsister. So Sue Ellen's helped me because I applied for all the coronial documents and read all of them. And I went through Sue Ellen to do that because now I think you have to have a family's permission mm. to access all those. I've tried to contact the, the detective of the case, but he'd be in his late 70s now. He lives in Queensland. He doesn't answer my letters. And I think that's possibly because of the criticism he, he got at the coronial inquest. Sue Ellen, who's been very helpful and believes that the police investigation failed, failed her sister. And, you know, with the recent information I found out about Gavin, with the assault charge pending, she's tried to get the cold case squad involved to reinvestigate. Who else would have known where Ravel Balmain was that night? Who else would have known at seven o'clock where she was? The agency didn't know. Her friends didn't know. So who else knew except for him? He was the only one who knew. He was the only one who claimed that she went in that hotel. No one saw her in the hotel. No cab picked her up. The police checked every taxi cab. No one saw her anywhere in the district. If he did do it, there can only be two possibilities where he would have disposed of the body. One was that his father had a business where a lot of skips and according to one source, she was in a skip. The other possibility, which is probably less plausible, was that he took her out when he went surfing, but I don't see how he could carry a body out on a surfboard. But he did go surfing at 4.30am when it's dark. So who knows? That's author John Dale, whose novel detective work is based on the unsolved disappearance of Ravel Balmain. After the break, we hear about the real Ravel, the young woman behind the headlines. But first, thank you to our generous patrons, Colleen Harrigan-Meisenholder, Shelley Schaefer, Charlie Lanigan, Karen Adamson, Sarah, Kate Much, Jasmine Rotarangi, Rochelle Hanna and Veronica. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. Coming up, an interesting perspective on a mother's attempt at healing. But first, Ravel Balmain's story is one that's tended to have been written in bullet points from day one. Beautiful young model, disappeared while working as escort, belongings found strewn in street, body never found. There's been precious little more than that written about Ravel over the years, so we set out trying to find someone who knew her to tell us about the woman behind those tawdry headlines. It was incredibly difficult to find any trace of her close circle of friends from back in the day, which is understandable for a lot of reasons. But then, in the unlikeliest of places, in the comments section of a YouTube video, I stumbled upon one lonely comment from a former boyfriend defending Ravel's honour, and I decided to track him down on the off chance he'd talk to us. His name is Clinton Barter, and he did agree to chat. I started, of course, by asking how he and Ravel met. There was a couple of my mates. There was three of us, actually. You know, we're living down in Cronulla. We got sick and tired of, you know, just going to Northeast Hotel and... <laughs> It was sort of looking looking further out of field, you know. We just wanted to see different things and so forth. So one of my mates said this about this thing called the black market. And I was like, what? What market? The black market. Oh, it's kind of near the central station and it's underground and, and it sounds kind of cool. So he's going, there's this night tonight. It's yes and S and M night. I was 21, 22, you know, and, and I was like, okay, well, let's go and have a look. I don't know if we'll get in, but anyway, we turned up to this. S&M night at Black Market and it's like walked in and wearing a pair of jeans and a pair of black shoes and a, I don't even know, maybe just a collared shirt or maybe a surf shirt. We got, three of us walked in and got in somehow and we just walked around going, what's this place? You know, everybody's, you know, walking around with gimp masks on and people on racks getting whipped and all this type of stuff and we're like, it was, it was fun because we were just like, just couldn't believe it was like walking around in a Hollywood movie, you know. What year was this? Because I remember that period of time when it was all those S&M clubs, wasn't it? This was the start of uh, 94. Hellfire. Hellfire. That, that's, that's black market and that's what they called it. It was called Hellfire Night. That was I it. remember, yeah. yeah. Wow. And I think it might, might have been a Thursday night because yep. it was midweek. 
anyway, so as I said, we were, we were dressed in, you know, blue jeans and, you know, a T-shirt and walking around and the three of us, we were just, we, were the, we stuck out like sore thumbs. <laughs> and we went upstairs and we saw these three girls standing near the bar and it was like, we kind of gravitated towards each other because, you know, they were dressed in, you know, just normal outfits as well. They weren't wearing any, you know, leather. The only normal ones. So we kind of gravitated towards each other. We moved towards them at the bar. And, you know, I just sort of, I looked at him and I was like, and I looked at this tall blonde girl. And it was, it was, we, we locked eyes and started talking and just got on really well. She was just very down to earth. There was two of her friends as well. So there was three of them and three of us. So we were just standing in the corner and just having a bit of a laugh at what was going on around us. So it was a, it was a funny night. And that's, that's how we met. We exchanged numbers at the end of the night. Nothing happened that night. And I met up during the week and come in for coffee, I think, at the weekend or early next week after that. You know, we had a lot in common. You know, she was into a modelling at the time. I, about a year ago, started with Chadwick's Male Models and I was doing a bit of work there. So we had a bit to talk about as far as going to castings and stuff like that. So we had a bit in common. She was living at Paddington at the time. I was down in Cronulla. Yeah, I'd make the trek in and, you know, we'd catch up and... You know, it was just, it was a really good time. I remember Ravel as as a caring, fun girl who was very, very down to earth. Her looks were just astounding. She was slim, slender, like a, like a dancer, of course, you know, about five foot eight, blonde hair, blue eyes, and just, just the way she carried herself, it was just, you know, she lit up the room and that's, you know, even the first time we ever met, she just had this presence about her that people wanted to be around. Just really thoughtful and you know just really wanted to know about you and we had some you know always had some great conversations about life and about her aspirations about wanting to you know dance overseas and modeling was just kind of you know a thing that she was doing at the time and early 90s look there's really only probably about five percent of models who actually can do it full-time and, and that's pretty much on the mark now it hasn't really changed over the years about five percent of models who actually can do it full-time so you look at the other 90, 95% of models who are looking to do something different, you know, where they work at cafe at night so they can go to castings during the day. And I kind of maybe think that's where Ravel went down that, that line as well, you know, as far as making some fast money, I guess, as an escort. And I can see why, you know, some of the richest guys around Sydney would want to be with her because, you know, she was stunning and she could achieve a whole conversation. She, she was really down to earth, a girl from over on the northern beaches of Sydney, and she was kind of like a surfy kind of girl. But the way that she spoke was very, it wasn't posh, but it was just she spoke very well and articulate, and she just held herself very well. Always positive, never heard her say anything negative about anyone or anything, you know what I mean? So it was like someone you really wanted to be around. So how did you break up, Clint? How did you let this amazing woman slip through your fingers? What happened? I know. (laughs) It's kind of, I guess, me living, you know, down in Cronulla and her living in in town, it was kind of nothing really happened. You know, there was no, as far as, you know, that that initiated some sort of breakup. It was kind of just grew apart. The phone calls became twice a week instead of, you know, every day and then the phone calls sort of, you know, started dying down and, I think I might have met someone else down in Cronulla and sort of went our separate ways. So there was nothing that, you know, did, we didn't cheat on each other or, you know, something substantial didn't make us break up. It was just, I guess, a distance thing, you know, even though it's only an hour away, but, you know, it's kind of, I guess, on my behalf because I was the one that was sort of going in to see her all the time. I didn't expect her to, you know, come down to Cronulla to see me. 
Ravella always spoke about her mum and dad in a very uh, loving, affirmative way. Always had nice things to say about her mum and dad and really looked up to them. She always spoke about her mum and dad in, in high regard. That she had a great upbringing and she felt blessed about that. Jan said that she'd lost her way. I don't believe that Ravel um, did lose her way. She was definitely on track to what she was doing, her goals and ambitions, and she was certainly on track for it. It can't really judge her for, you know, doing what she was doing. Uh, it's a means to an end, I guess, and it's going to get me to from A to B. There's people out there making assumptions that she was into drugs or drug addict. That's so untrue. She wasn't doing high-class escorting to fund a drug habit, that's for sure. She wasn't shooting heroin up her arm. People have said that she was, you know, a coke addict. It was basically to try and fund her dream of actually getting overseas and dancing. I didn't know that she was working in that industry at the time. I knew that she was working in cabaret sort of burlesque shows. So I did go, she invited me to one of those early on in the relationship. So I went along to, I think it was Sydney Cabaret or Sydney Showboat or something like this was called. And it was kind of like the Moulin Rouge. So all the girls would there be on stage and with their feathers and all that type of stuff. It was really classy. You know, it was, it was, it was a class act. I remember going to the show thinking, oh, what's, you know, what's this about? You know, like a, I was only just a, you know, 21, 22 year old from, you know, the Sutherland Shire. And, you know, I'm going to this pretty cool show and I'm thinking, what's all this about? It wasn't topless all the way through. Well, that's very much in keeping with that, that Moulin Rouge French cabaret style show, right? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty much basically along the lines of Moulin Rouge. She did share with me at some point that that was her dream. Her ambition was to dance there one day in Paris because you talk about your dreams and aspirations and, and so forth with a girl you're just starting to date. You know, Ravel deserves to, you know, have someone speak up and I'm quite surprised that her boyfriend at the time hasn't said much in regards to, you know, Ravel. I guess there hasn't been really a platform well, also, people just cope differently, you know, and some people just, just can't bring themselves to talk about it. I think probably because the remains haven't been found, I think it's so painful, really. It is. It is, yeah. It is indeed. It's um, the New South Wales police really need to pull their finger out and actually do something. It seems that it was bungled right from the start. It was a bungled investigation and there were so many errors you know, with the detective sergeant, Mole Tarrant. I mean, he was, it was his first day on the job. So I can see how many mistakes were made. It was, you know, just breathtaking how many mistakes he made that day. You're studying right now investigation, right? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm studying um, to be an investigator. So I'm three quarters of the way through that course at the moment. So you have to do a, a Cert three in investigation. Uh, it's always something I wanted to do. It was only about a year after... Me and Ravel were together. Actually, I, I joined the Sydney Police. wasn't there very long. I, I kind of went down a different track. I, I went through the police academy. I wanted to go and be a detective. That was my ambition. I remembered working out of the eastern suburbs at Waverley. I guess I wanted everything to be right now. Yeah. You know, like I didn't really want to wait three or four years as general duties police officer. I got a, a different job offer with Anset Australia, so I become a flight attendant. That would seem more fun to me at the time. Yeah. So. I kind of regret it to this day that I, that I still have fun with Anset, but now it's kind of it's come back around and it's time to do that, you know, that investigative thing that's inside me that really wants to find out why things happen. And 
So having an unsolved disappearance, we have to call it, of a former girlfriend must be on your mind a lot when you're learning investigative skills. Yeah, it is. It's giving me goosebumps now. It still does to this day. It still affects me. You know, I found out what happened in Revelle about a week later when it first hit the media and newspapers. I remember being at my brother's uh, wedding. I was the best man at my brother's wedding. And a friend of mine who had also known Ravel through me come to me with a newspaper and it's like, well, Ravel's missing. And I'm like, I just, I felt like I'd been slapped across the face with a, a wet towel. It was just, you know, it was like, bang, what? Really? So it was, it affected me then and it was like it was just something that's always been on my mind, you know, what a family must be going through. You know, it's, it must be so tough on them not to be able to find a daughter. Do you think now that the fact that she was on a job as a sex worker played into the investigation? Do you think that investigators didn't immediately take it more seriously because of that? 100%, yeah. I think that obviously Detective Sergeant who turned up and, and questioned Gavin Samer, it was basically that they were just sort of doing the initial investigation, I believe, first questioning at the last known location that she was at. God, it's it's definitely something just because they obviously found out and made some initial prejudice against her being a sex worker. If it had been, you know, somebody else and it was just someone that had gone missing who hasn't been seen for, you know, a day or two and it wasn't a sex worker, I think, you know, things might have been different. I had a friend of mine who was working at the King's Cross Police Station at the time. He's a sergeant there at the time. He ended up going up to be an inspector throughout the years. But he always kept me updated on, you know, any events that were sort of, you know, happening, any leads that they got. So I was kind of in the know directly because he was making inquiries of his own as far as, you know, finding out where the investigation was at. So it was good to have a friend on the inside, I guess, just to find out what was going on. It's kind of surreal. It still seems surreal. And you just wonder what, what what happened. Hopefully, whatever happened, it wasn't painful. God just, you just feel for her. And, and she deserves justice. Her family deserves justice. Her family deserves to be able to lay their daughter to rest. Hopefully, one day... There'll be some sort of justice and someone will um, be, be charged. Thank you to Clinton Barter for speaking to us about his friend, Ravel Balmain. Thank you to John Dale, author of Detective Work, which is available now wherever you get your books. Thank you to patrons Beck Allen, Laura, Ashy Girl, Jessica Duncan, Laura Salievis, Crystal, Angie, Mitch Burke, Lucy McLeod and Jessica Nicholas. Thank you all for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.